0: Chapter Twenty Seven of Bullets and Billets by Bruce Barnes. Father, this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven: Getting Fit, Caricaturing the Cure, Dirty Work Ahead, A Projected Attack, Unlooked For Orders. Military life during our ten days was to consist of getting into good training again in all departments. After long spells of trench life, troops get very much out of strong, efficient marching capabilities and are also apt to get slack all round these rests therefore come periodically to all at the front and are as it were tonics if men stayed long enough in trenches i should say from my studies in evolution that their legs would slowly merge into one sort of fin-like tail and their arms into seal-like flappers in fact time would convert them into intelligent sea lions and render them completely in harmony with their natural life Our tonic began by being taken one dose after meals, twice daily. In the morning the battalion generally went for a long route march, and in the afternoon practiced military training of various kinds in the fields about the village. My whole time was occupied with machine-gun training. Morning and afternoon I and my sections went off out into the country, and selecting a good, variegated bit of land proceeded to go through every phase of machine-gun warfare. We practiced the use of these weapons in woods, open fields, along hedges, etc. It was an interesting job. We used to decide on some section of ground with an object to be attacked in the distance, and approach it in all kinds of ways. Competitions would follow between the different sections. The days were all bright, warm, and sunny, so life and work out in the fields and roads there was quite pleasant. Each evening we assembled in our cheerful billet, and thus our rest went on. My sketching now broke out like a rash. I drew a great many sketches. I joked in pencil for everyone, including Suzette, Berta, and Marta. I'm sorry to say I plead guilty to having cast a certain amount of ridicule at the curé. He was so splendidly austere, and wore such funny clothes that I couldn't help perpetrating several sketches of him. The disloyalty of his parishioners was very marked in the way they laughed at these drawings which were pinned up in the row of cottages. Sometimes I would let him off for a day, and then he would come drifting past the window again with his dante face, surmounted by a large, curly, faded black hat, and I gave way to temptation again. He didn't like soldiers being billeted in his village, so Suzette told me. I think he got this outlook from his rather painful experiences when the Germans were in the same village prior to being driven north. They had locked him up in his own cellar for four or five days after removing his best wine, which they drank, upstairs. This sort of thing does tend towards giving one a bitter outlook. He preached a sermon whilst we were there. I didn't hear it, but was told about it simultaneously by Suzette, Berta, and Marta, who informed me that it was directed against soldiery in general. His text had apparently been, Do not trust them, gentle ladies. A gross libel. I retaliated immediately by drawing a picture of him with a girl sitting on each knee, singing, The soldiers are going, hurrah, hurrah. tune. The Campbells are coming. I'm afraid I was rather a canker in his village. One day my dear old friend turned up, the same who accompanied me on leave to England. He didn't know we were having our rest, and searched for me first behind Welvergum. He there heard where we were and came on. He was rather a star in a military way, and could therefore get hold of a car now and again. I was delighted to see him, as it was possible for me to go into Belul with him for the afternoon. We went off and had a real good time at the Falcon door. We went out for a short drive round in the evening, and then parted. He was obliged to get back to somewhere near Bethune that night. The next day I was just starting off on my machine-gun work when an orderly arrived with a message for me. The colonel wanted to see me at headquarters. I went along and arriving at his house found all the company commanders, the second in command, and the adjutant already assembled there. Dirty work ahead, I thought to myself, and went into the colonel's room with the others. Enormous maps were produced, and we all stood and listened. We are going to make an attack, started the colonel, so I saw that my conjecture wasn't far wrong. He explained the details to us all there, and pointed out on the maps as many of the geographical features of the forthcoming show as he could after which he told us that, that very afternoon, we were all to go on a motor-bus that would come for us down to the allotted site for the scrap, to have a look at the ground. This was news, if you like, a thunderbolt in the midst of our rural serenity. At two o'clock the bus arrived, and we, the chosen initiated few, rattled off down the main street of the village and away to the scene of operations. Where it was, I won't say. Cheers from the censor. But it took us about an hour to get there. We left the motor bus well back and walked about a couple of miles, up roads and communication trenches, until we reached a line of trenches we had never seen before. A wonderful set of trenches they were, it seemed to us. Beautifully built, not much water about, and nice dugouts. The colonel conferred with several authorities who had the matter in hand, and then pointing out the sector in front which affected us, told us all to study it to the best of our ability. I spent the time with a periscope and a pair of binoculars drinking in the scene. It's difficult to get a good view of the intervening ground between opposing lines of trenches in the daytime when one's only means of doing so is through a periscope. Night is the time for this job when you can go in front and walk about. This ground which we had come to see was completely flat, and one had to put a periscope pretty high over the parapet to see the sort of thing it was. It was no place to put your head up to have a look. A bullet went smack into the colonel's periscope and knocked it out of his hand. However, with time and patience, we formed a pretty accurate idea of the appearance of the country opposite. Behind the German trench was the remains of a village, a few of the houses of which were up level with the Boche front line. A great scene of wreckage. Every single house was broken and in a crumbling state. This was the place we had to take. Other regiments were to take other spots on the landscape on either side but this particular spot was our objective. I stared long and earnestly at the wrecks in front and the intervening ground. About a two-hundred-yard sprint, I thought to myself. We stayed in the trenches an hour or two, and then all went back to a spot a couple of miles away and had tea, after which we mounted the motor-bus and drove back home to our village. We had got something to think about now all right. The coming show was the feature uppermost in our lives now. Every one keen to get at it as we all felt sure we could push the boche out of that place when the time came. We, the initiated few, had to keep our inside information to ourselves, and it was supposed to be a dark mystery to the rest of the battalion. But I imagine that anyone who didn't guess what the idea was must have been pretty dense. When a motor bus comes and takes off a group of officers for the day and brings them back at night, one would scarcely imagine that they had been to a cricket match or on the annual outing. Well, the tumbrel, as we called it, arrived each day for nearly a week, and we drove off gaily to the appointed spot and saturated ourselves in the characteristics of the land we were shortly to attack. In the mornings before we started, I took the machine-gun sections out into the fields, and by mapping out a similar landscape to the one we were going to attack, I rehearsed the coming tribulation as far as possible. My gunners were a pretty efficient lot, and I was sure they would give a good account of themselves on dog. We practiced bolting across a ploughed field and coming into action until we could do it in record time. My sergeant and senior corporal were both excellent men. The whole battalion were now in excellent trim and ready for anything that came along. A date had been fixed for the show, and now, day by day, we were rapidly approaching it. It was Friday, I remember, when, as we were all sitting in our billets thinking that we were to leave on Sunday, a fresh thunderbolt arrived. A message was sent round to us all to stand to and be ready to move off that evening, before the appointed day. What could be up now? I was full of enthusiasm and curiosity, but was rather hampered by having been inoculated the day before, and was feeling a bit quaint in consequence. However, I pulled myself together and set about collecting all the machine-gunners, guns, and accessories. We said good-bye to the fair ones at the billets, and by about five o'clock in the evening, the whole battalion transport and all was lined up on the main road soon we moved off why were we going before our time where were we going to nobody knew except the colonel but it was not long before we knew as well chapter twenty seven recording by philip gould